I'll be reading our scripture for today. It's Exodus 19, mm -hmm. 1 through 9. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my command, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Joining us today, we are working our way through the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses. And this week and next week, we're going to be looking at when God gives his law to his people, when he calls them to obey. And this is, without a doubt, one of the most misunderstood and confusing parts of Christianity. Like, how do I relate to God um, based on his laws? Is my relationship based on my obedience? If it's not based on obedience, does that mean I shouldn't have to obey at all? And so I'm going to pray um, that God will give us great wisdom to listen as he speaks to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God who does not deal with us according to what our sins deserve. And good news that the angels in heaven struggled to grasp you chose to deal with us based on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Word, which is living and active, and we pray that your Spirit will come this morning, and you will send it forth to accomplish your purpose, and we pray that it will not return void. We ask that in Christ's name, amen. I want to start with a question. When is the last time someone gave you a compliment? How did you respond? Was it easy to receive? Was it difficult? Like me, did you find yourself feeling uncomfortable and without being told to do so, you quickly deflected or explained why you didn't deserve the compliment or made a joke to try to get out of the uncomfortable position of receiving kindness from someone else? To take it a layer deeper, when, if ever, has someone told you that they like you? I don't mean romantically. I mean just they like you, that they enjoy you, that they like being with you, that they want to spend more time with you. Has it even happened recently? If so, can you remember how it felt to stand in the awkward, we could say vulnerable place of receiving grace from someone else? And that's what it is. When, when someone uses words to bless you and to say something kind and gracious to you, to encourage you, it's an act of grace. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace. You can translate grace simply as unmerited favor, that it gives favor to those who hear. I bring that up because I have two concerns. First is that, at least speaking for myself, um, far too often my speech is corrupted. And I'm quick to just want to judge, gossip, criticize, and condemn, even with words or my own inner thoughts and actions. And I don't often use my tongue the way I should to give grace and build others up. But also when it comes to receiving. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he did the unthinkable, getting down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet in a culture where their feet were filthy in ways we can't imagine. And as a reflection of most of the human hearts in this room, I assume, Peter said, I'm never going to let you wash me, Jesus. And he said, if you don't learn to receive grace from me, then you have no part with me. You don't understand how this relationship even works. And I bring that up because in our passage today, God tells his people, freely redeemed from slavery in Egypt, having no identity whatsoever, you are my chosen and treasured possession. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, I have chosen you. I have set my affection upon you. To say that this would have been shocking is a gross, gross understatement. My concern for us, if we've grown up in America and been around the church at all, is if you come to church and hear, hey, God loves you. He, he delights to spend time with you. That you probably yawn and think so. Or what else? What's he done for me lately? I think it was a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, we had the privilege of some of our missionaries from all over the world coming and sharing about how God is advancing the kingdom in different ways. And one guy who serves in India shared a conversation he was having with a, a farmer who in a Hindu religious system, like every religion in the world apart from Christianity, which is based on works. If you obey and work well, you are blessed, and if you don't, you are cursed. He was struggling with the issue of karma because his crops and um, everything in his farm were not going very well. And as this missionary had been building a relationship with him, he had a chance to tell him the good news of Christianity. Hey, the one true living God in the fullness of time took on flesh and willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And if you have faith in him, you can have eternal life. And he said that this guy could not even begin to fathom news that good. That he just sat there after asking questions and just wept over how could this possibly be. And then the missionary said, but the thing that really blew him away, that melted him to the point where he couldn't really even respond, he could only worship, was the fact that that God who paid for your sins wants to have a relationship with you a personal relationship with you, that he calls you his chosen and treasured possession. Now, we hear that declaration all the time, and I get concerned, like Jesus says to the church in Revelation 2-4, I have this charge against you. You have forsaken your first love. That's why I love Amazing Grace. At our leadership meeting on Friday, we spent about 10 minutes just listening to that and then just praying that God would help his grace to never lose his precious value in our life. When you first come from death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's grace is, is powerful and is palpable in your life. But then over time, you can drift into this lukewarmness. That should never be the case. I, I want somehow, some way, by God's Spirit, when we hear him in his passage today, say, hey, you are my treasured possession. 
Out of every people group on the face of the earth, you belong to me. You're a holy nation and a priesthood of believers. Peter steals that exact phrase and applies it to us right now in Christ, in the church. Does that move our heart? Or do we just yawn? It should never, ever lose its power. And if it has for you, then you have an invitation today by God to say, will you please bring fresh wonder? Will you put amazing back into your grace and draw me back to yourself? And, and I, I needed and felt called to make sure we lead with that because I said earlier, how we relate to God, especially based on his commands and law, is the absolute area where there's the most confusion in the Christian life. And so you may have heard and, and think, well, wait a minute. Cindy just read that the Lord said, if you obey and keep my covenant, you will be my treasure possession. That must mean that in order for his affection to rest on me and me to live in the joy of his grace, I have to obey. That's what merits it. That's not true at all. What he is saying there in Exodus is if you want to live in and out of the, the blessing that comes from being my chosen possession, then you will live in my good and holy laws. In Deuteronomy, he says it this way, you are a people that is holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now, before I keep reading, when we hear that declaration, the first thing it should do is absolutely shock us and stun us to silence. But where sometimes our sinful heart can get it twisted is in three ways. First, we can say, oh, well, of course, I'm deserving. <laughs> I mean, I'm better than everybody else I know, so God should love me. Or on the other extreme, there's no way that can be true. If God really knew who I really was, there's no way he could love me. Or wrongly, thirdly, well, maybe in order for that to be true, he's now waiting to see how I'm going to respond. And if I work hard enough, try my best, and I'm morally am superior to most people if he grades on a curve, then maybe, just maybe, that can be true. But listen to what he says. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord chose you to be his treasure possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. He says it wasn't because you were more numerous than other people that he set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. And then if you say, oh, okay, well, maybe they were just few in number. They weren't as wicked as the Egyptians. Um, maybe they were more humble and loving and outward facing. Well, in Exodus 32, the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people whom I chose, my treasured possession, whom I redeemed, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That doesn't mean they need to go to the chiropractor, okay? Stiff-necked means haughty, prideful, stubborn. In other words, they're hard to love, just like us. Tim and Kathy Keller say it this way. And this is them in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, talking about covenant love. God covenants himself to us. They say to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. So if someone says to you, hey, I really love you and enjoy being with you, but they don't know you very well, of course there's that, as Larry Crabb says, there's that deep nagging cloud of, yeah, but if you really knew me, there's no way you would say that. The opposite is if someone knows me, but doesn't love me, that's my greatest fear, being rejected. He says, but to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any, any difficulty that life can throw our way. See, this is so important. To the degree that you actually believe 
I mean, actually in your heart, live, move, and have your being out of the truth that you are God's chosen and treasured possession, every single aspect of your life will be different. You won't simply be better at letting no corrupting talk come out of your mouth and giving grace when you speak, but every aspect of your life, you'll have more joy, you'll have more freedom, you'll be outward facing and open-handed, you will receive each day as a gift from our kind and loving Father. God says, I know you better than you know yourself. I chose you and I redeemed you. Now we must pay very close attention to what's happening in this passage. God says, now therefore, if indeed you obey my voice and you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now I already said this, the default mode of our heart is to say, there it is, there it is. It must be based on my obedience and my effort. But remember the context of this story. Remember what's happening. God didn't go to Moses in the burning bush and say, go to the elders of Israel and tell them, here's the Ten Commandments. Scratch that. Let me be kind. Tell them just to love God and love their neighbor well. And if they do that the next year, better than the Egyptians, I'll save them and redeem them. He doesn't say that. When Moses goes back to the elders of Israel and says, hey, the one true living God who created the heavens and the earth and who covenanted himself to Abraham, our forefather, he just said that he sees us, he sees our groaning, and he's going to redeem us. And they said, who? Who are you even talking about? The point there is that God's grace always goes before our obedience. This is the way Michael Williams says it in his book, Far as the Curse is Found. Sovereign grace always goes before human response. Everything Israel is or will be is a result of his grace a result of his unmerited favor given to undeserving recipients by an unobligated giver. Notice in verse 4, before verse 5, where he says, obey and keep covenant, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. If you're familiar with church history, there was a great debate in the 1500s between the Greek humanist um, Erasmus and the German reformer Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, on the nature of God's grace. And Erasmus argued that God's grace was like parents that are trying to help their toddler learn how to walk. And they pick the toddler up and they get him set and they back up and say, you can do it, you can do it. And they cheer him on. And even if the toddler stumbles and bumbles, they kind of help him along the way. That God's grace is kind of like a little vitamin steroid boost to get you on the way. And Luther said, boy, that category of grace is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. The, the biblical picture of grace is that we are caterpillars in a ring of fire. The only hope is sovereign rescue. And that's exactly what this text says. The Lord says, I didn't give you commands that you followed and that enabled you to become wise and defeat the Egyptians. You were powerless, but I saved you. I chose you. You belong to me. Now, as my chosen and treasured possession, live in light of my good and holy law. This is how you're created to live. This is how you will reflect my character to the world. That's why he says you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To be a kingdom of priests means that you will go out into the world and be a blessing on behalf of me. To be a holy nation doesn't mean that you'll walk around thinking that you're more moral and righteous and stuck up and arrogant than others. It means that other people will be so shocked by the way you love them by the way, Paul says in Philippians 2 that we'll have this mindset 
will consider the interests of others as more important than our own, that Peter says that people will ask us regularly, hey, what's up with the hope inside of you? I don't have a category for how you live your life. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A people so amazed by God's grace and mercy that we go out into the world to be a blessing. And that has always been God's design. When he made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, excuse me, he said, I want you to go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So in other words, God's grace always calls us to go out, not to build walls inside a fortress where we think we're safe. It always calls us to go out. He says, but I'm gonna make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you can be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, those that dishonor you, I will curse. But in you, Abraham, and your descendants, all the peoples, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And, and unless you're confused about what does that have to do with me, Galatians 3, Paul says, every person who has faith in Christ is a child of Abraham. That same promise applies to us. In other words, God blesses us. Why? For the purpose of blessing others, to send us out. It's always his grace that leads to gratitude, that leads to generosity, that leads to good works. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. He says that you have been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God in every way, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. And then Paul doesn't say, therefore, be happy and go do whatever the heck you want. When God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, he didn't say, okay, listen, I destroyed Pharaoh. I didn't just set you free. I like literally destroyed him in the Red Sea. Y'all go do whatever you want. Go figure things out on your own. I give you autonomy. Okay, pursue your own heart. No, he says, I have a greater purpose and mission that you were created to do. Sin and slavery has distorted it, but you were created to live for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. And notice what Paul says. In every way you're saved by grace. Before this, he says what that literally means is you were dead and now you're alive. And so that grace leads to good works and gratitude. He says, we are God's workmanship. And I love that Paul says, created, not redeemed, created. We are created in Christ for good works. In other words, same thing he told Abraham. We are blessed in order to be a blessing, which God has prepared beforehand. All the good works he's already prepared that we should walk in them. And that's why he says, keep my covenant. We are a culture that is so confused by this because we don't use the term covenant at all. And the reason we don't use the term covenant at all is because we're commitment phobic. We have been so like, cursed for 60 plus years as a society with the lie that happiness, meaning, significance, and value comes from only always seeking your own good. Don't commit yourself to anyone outside of what you think will make you happy. Don't commit yourself to any cause or purpose or mission that requires sacrifice. At a minimum, you can use contracts when you think a contract benefits you, but once the contract doesn't benefit you, you should break it and get the heck out of here. And, and, and to highlight this, David Brooks, and this is the quote in the front of your bulletin, in his book, The Second Mountain, and, and I want this to be required reading for every guy in our church this summer. And that's not a joke. I'm having to read this for school. It is an absolute amazing follow-up to our men's retreat when Bill McCutcheon essentially challenged our men, stop wasting your life. And, and Bill was able to say this because he's like, listen, guys, most of you are, are trying to find success and happiness climbing the first mountain that the culture says 
of accumulation and accomplishment will lead to happiness. Well, just to let you know, and this is Bill talking, he's like, I'm in Hilton Head, and I'm ministering to the men that you're trying to be in 25 years. And they are overwhelmingly filled with regret and sorrow for wasting their life chasing what doesn't matter. And so Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, is he saying the first mountain culture says, you know, wealth, status, fame, popularity, all the things the world tells you will make you happy is a lie. And most people waste their life climbing the first mountain. And he says only by grace, typically when you experience failure, disappointment, setback, and it knocks you in the valley, do you have a chance to be awakened to something greater and and a willingness to give your life away for something that matters? And so he says this, the rampant individualism of our current culture is a catastrophe. The emphasis on self, individual success, self-fulfillment, individual freedom, self-actualization is a catastrophe. For six decades, the worship of the self has been the central preoccupation of our culture, molding the self, investing the self, expressing the self, When a whole society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another, divided and alienated. And that is what has happened to us. We are down in the valley. The rot we see in our politics is caused by a rot in our moral and cultural foundations, in the way we relate to one another, in the way we see ourselves as separable from one another, in the individualistic values that have become the water in which we swim. And then listen to this, our society has become a conspiracy against joy. This incessant message that you shouldn't covenant yourself to anyone or anything absolutely guarantees you will never have joy. It's like a mic drop. And honestly, he's writing in this book out of his own story and the deep sadness of his own marriage ending and him feeling like a failure for not prioritizing what he considered the biggest commitment he ever would make in his life. He says we need to understand exactly what God is saying in this passage, that we are created by God to live in covenant with God and one another. That means in a promise to work and seek the good of someone else, even if it costs us momentary happiness because it leads to greater joy. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explains the difference in a contract and a covenant. He says a contract is a transaction, but a covenant is a relationship. To put it slightly differently, a contract is about interest, but a covenant is about identity. It is about you and me coming together to form an us. That is why contracts benefit, but covenants transform. And so Phil Riken in his commentary on Exodus says, when God says, I want you to live and keep my covenant, His covenant was his unbreakable promise to love his people. His unbreakable promise that I will always love you, even though I know how stiff-necked you are. I'm going to do everything necessary to never break the covenant relationship of unconditional love that I have given to you. And we know for a fact that's true because in the fullness of time, Jesus, the greater Moses, our covenant mediator, came and not only kept the law perfectly, but paid the penalty for all the ways that we break the covenant so that that declaration can be true. So that we can know that we have an identity as children of God, as his chosen treasured people that we can't lose. In other words, the pressure's off. You don't have to go out and do some great thing to make a great name for yourself. And when the pressure's off, what you realize is, oh, wait a minute. I've actually been created to live for the glory of God and the good of someone else. 
That means my life actually has meaning. There should be a purpose in how I live. I should wake up each day and actually pray the prayer Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Father, won't your kingdom come and your will be done instead of praying, essentially, I want my kingdom to come and my will be done. And if you love me and you're in control, you'll make sure that happens. And then I just lead to frustration and anger and doubts. But we're created and called to live for something more. God was saying, listen, I set you apart and chose you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. Are we aware of how much we need this direction and guidance in our life? Like we as a society, we are so lost. One of my favorite parts of this book is that Brooks goes on to say, every society has a way that it transmits its moral values to its young people. Some do it through religious festivals. Some do it through military parades. He says, in our culture, what we do it through is the secular sermon known as a commencement address where colleges and universities invite some accomplished person in the world's eyes to drop wisdom down on the young. And he said, with great anticipation and excitement, our young people sit in the chairs thinking, I've got this degree, I've studied hard, give me guidance on how to live my life. What am I here for? Tell me how to have meaning and purpose and value. And Brooks says that what ends up happening is that the commencement speakers come as if they have a great, awesome present. And he gives a lot of commencement speeches so he can speak honestly. He says, but it turns out that these presents are nothing. They're great big boxes of nothing. Our young people are in limbo, plagued by uncertainty. They want to know specifically, how should I live my life? And so we say to them, well, here, here's a great big empty box of freedom. The purpose of your life is to be free. Do whatever makes you happy. And they realize, what are you talking about? I'm drowning in freedom. I have no direction or guidance whatsoever in my life. How can I know which path is my path? Oh, okay, well, here's the next big box of nothing, the box of possibility. Your future is limitless. You can do whatever you want to do. One of the greatest lies our culture passes down to us. No matter how hard I try, I'm never going to play for the Hornets, right? It just, I'm just it's not going to happen, right? We went to a Charlotte FC game last night. I could not will myself today to play for the Charlotte FC soccer team, football team. I could never do it. So then this just ups the pressure on our young people. So then we say, oh, okay, here's another box, the box of authenticity. Look inside yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what's right or wrong. You determine it for yourself. But of course, this is completely useless too. The you that we are telling them to consult for life's answers hasn't even been formed yet. So they put this down in desperation and ask, is there anything I can devote myself to? Is there any inspiration or meaning or direction I should pursue in life? Then we say, oh, okay, here's the emptiest box of all, the box of autonomy. You're on your own. It's up to you to define your own values. No one else can ever tell you what is right or wrong. And he summarizes it this way. You'll notice that all of our answers take the difficulties of living in your 20s and make them so much worse. The graduates are in limbo, and we give them uncertainty. They want to know why they should do this opposed to that, and we have nothing to say except figure it out yourself based on no criteria outside of yourself. They are floundering in a formless desert. Not only do we not give them a compass, we take a bucket of sand and throw it all over their heads. One of the reasons that hit me so powerfully this week is because Tuesday night we had a chance to go to a dinner for the Charlotte Fellows. And if you're not familiar, I referenced this earlier, it's a nine-month postgraduate um, program 
meant to pour into these recent college grads and instead of dumping a bucket of sand on their head to add to confusion, it's meant to give them direction and meaning and purpose in life. And so I've already been amazed at the fellows that have lived with us the past four years at what an impact this short season has when a community invests. But one of the current fellows, Virginia Francis Teal, got up and shared what it's been like for her. And no surprise to anyone who knows me, I was excited. I run to her, I'm like, hey, you've got to share that in church. And so I asked Virginia Francis if she would come and share a little bit of that this morning. Thank you, Matt. Good morning. My name is Virginia Francis, and I'm a recent graduate of Wofford College. I've been in Charlotte for the past eight months, undergoing the Charlotte Fellows Program. I came into the program excited about all the ways I would grow in my knowledge of Christ, serve within a new community, and learn about how faith and work intersect. I could never have imagined how God would, as he always does, surpass my expectations. One of my biggest praises from this past year is because of you. Truly, there's a remarkable and wondrous gift that is to be found only in community. We all know that we were not made to do life alone. More than that, though, I believe that community is not just here for the doing or the getting through life. Rather, I think this year has shown me that we actually need community to live into the fullest of life, and in doing so, are brought nearer to Christ. I've been so deeply thankful to be a part of this church community. It has opened my eyes to the ways that God can use his word, worship, vulnerability, humility, and repentance to breed an absolutely wonderful and openly imperfect community. I'm enamored by my wise mentor, Ann Sorrells, the selflessness of our director, Catherine Trice, the generosity and profound kindness of my host parents, Mark and Shelley McLean, my employers, Caitlin and Doug Rose, that seem to be extraordinarily full of grace and intent on loving their neighbors well, my new friends, the other fellows that challenge me to become a better friend, our professional development leaders, Matt Holquist and Mark Lenz, and their commitment to us during this process, speakers that come to Roundtable and invite us into their stories, incredible servants that are scattered all over the city and have a heart for those in need. I could go on and on. Of course, bearing witness to these amazing people could do nothing but shape how I want to live out my life as an employee or employer, friend, leader, parent, coach, and in every other sphere. I feel like it's a rarity to move to a new area and automatically search for an outlet to serve. I know if it weren't for fellows, I would not be doing that right now. It would probably take me a long time to look beyond my job and friends to even consider sacrificing time to serve. Having so many outlets to serve, though, including the nonprofits we visit weekly, has been one of my favorite parts of the year and one of the most eye-opening. I feel like I'm consistently having my lenses checked and being offered a new perspective. I'm in awe of how the Charlotte community has not only identified the needs of their neighbors, but actually acted on it, and furthermore, that they've invited us into it. I feel a simultaneous sense of deep gratitude and a heightened desire to pour into others for the ways that I've been poured into this year. I feel like this cup is overflowing and I need to start scooping some of the water into someone else's glass. 
My point being, this program is so much more than the actual time you're in it. It is a year that molds your heart and transforms how you walk about in this world. I'm forever changed after being a part of the Charlotte Fellows and entering into this community. And I'm thankful for the countless ways it has radically influenced me for a lifetime. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You still may be confused about the Charlotte Fellows, and that's okay. The point of what I wanted you to hear is just what an impact when you actually consider the interests and needs of others as more significant than your own can have and how God can use that in ways that you can't imagine. And the thing that um, VF doesn't know is that everybody that I know that she referenced doesn't feel like they've made some great sacrifice. They are so thankful and have so much joy and happiness that they know her and they know the other fellows and they get to participate in this great work. And I love that she said, I could continue to testify on and on about all of these things and ways I've been shaped, but it's actually formed how I want to live my life. Instead of standing up here saying, I feel like I have a bucket of sand dumped on my head and I don't know what to do, I've been given a picture of what it looks like to experience a holy community and a kingdom of priests giving their life away. And that's what we're invited into. Every message in our culture, culture is going to tell us to live the opposite way. But our Savior and King says, I am among you as one who serves. This is the way of the kingdom, not for the select few, but for all who belong to Jesus. Peter says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray and ask that your spirit will do a work in our lives as powerful as you did when you destroyed Pharaoh and you set your people free from slavery in Egypt. But we just finished singing a few minutes ago, my chains are gone, I've been set free. Help us as your people, your chosen and treasured possession to proclaim your excellencies, to, to live in a way that is so confusing to this world, a way that grants us deep joy. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples that the Gentiles, that those in this world are always looking to have a position of power or honor or wealth or prestige. And you were very clear, that shall not ever be the case with my covenant people. For you are among us as one who serves. The way of the kingdom is the way of service. And so help us to keep your covenant, to live for your glory and the good of others. Stir, ignite a passion even in our hearts now as we respond in worship. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.